Please do join me in taking out your Bibles once again and turning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. That was, uh, by the way, wonderful singing. Uh, As I've said before, um, when I'm in other churches, uh, it's always great to come back to this church. Uh, Our singing, um, and I especially appreciate the leadership of those playing and helping to lead singing, it's just wonderful. We can hear our voices uh, together, and I really uh, can say this, hopefully in all honesty and integrity, that there's really no congregation that sings better than Grace and Peace, so thanks for joining your voices um, to that. Um, Before we begin, let's uh, go to the Lord and ask for his help. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I would think that most of us um, may have heard of this um, expression, practice random acts of kindness. Now, what is a random act of kindness? Well, I got some help online. A random act of kindness is a non-premeditated, inconsistent action designed to offer kindness towards the outside world. The phrase, random kindness and senseless acts of beauty, was written by Ann Herbert on a placemat in Sausalito, California in 1982. It was based on the phrase, random acts of violence and senseless acts of cruelty. She, in other words, she, she wrote that to, to, um, to counter that. You know, there is an, there's even out there a random acts of kindness foundation. Did y'all know that? Anybody know that? That there's a random acts of kindness foundation. And on their website, the first thing you read is this. Can you imagine a world where kindness is the norm? That's the world we want. That's why we do what we do. And it requires some intentional actions. That's interesting. Random yet intentional. Random acts of kindness. Now it sounds good, right? Sounds like it's supposed to motivate us. But is it really? Do you want to live in a world just of random acts of kindness? I mean, is it good on either the receiving end of these random acts or even on the giving end of random acts. Um, does this idea motivate you? Uh, can, it, um, can it sustain you for the long haul? Can, can the thought of doing or receiving random acts of kindness sustain you in this world of sin and misery? Well, today we're going to encounter not a random act of kindness but one rather that's deliberate. Now today as we move into verses 11 through 7 of chapter 7, there's going to be a shift in focus from man's faith to God's action. And remember last week it was the first thing that Luke had presented following the sermon on the plain. And we saw last week what faith looks like. You see, that emphasis on those first 10 verses was on the centurion's faith, whereas the emphasis here we'll see is on God's action, specifically the compassion of Jesus. Last week, it was what faith looks like. This week, it's what compassion looks like. 
Now, this compassion that Jesus extends to the widow is not a random act of kindness. Rather, it is a deliberate act coming from the heart of a gracious and merciful God. You see, through his ministry, Jesus of Nazareth is revealing the heart of God. He's making the invisible reality of who God is and what God does a visible reality. Now, Luke is the only gospel writer who includes this story. How's this story going to support Luke's purpose and plan? Remember, Luke's written this orderly account so that his readers may have certainty concerning the things they have been taught. Things taught, that is, things taught about Jesus, who he is, why he came to do what he did, and how someone should respond to the person and work of Jesus. Remember, Jesus, in his own words, said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost, all kinds of people lost in all kinds of ways. Well, let's now hear this passage read, and today we're experimenting to see if it's also good to have it um, up on the screen. Uh, You can look up, you can look down. Uh, We'll see how that works out. Let's uh, listen now to this story of Jesus raising a widow's son. Soon afterward, he, that is Jesus, went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. Well, where's Nain? It's only mentioned once in the entire Bible. It's about 25 miles south of Capernaum where we last saw Jesus. It's about six miles southeast of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. It's about a day's journey um, to there. Did you see the scene? I mean, it might be helpful sometime to to like think if you can write the screen play, you know, visualize it. There's two crowds, right? Two crowds going in opposite directions, a great crowd and a considerable crowd, and they're coming toward one another and they're meeting at the city gate From one perspective, there's a crowd coming out of the town and death is going to meet life. And from the other perspective, there's a crowd moving toward the town where life is going to meet death. What do we see? 
Well, what we see here is a miracle. This is the the first of three restorations of life that Jesus performs. Here with the widow's son, later we'll see the daughter of the synagogue ruler Jairus, and then of course recorded in John is the raising from the dead of Lazarus. Now, at the center of this text, what Luke wants us to see, whereas we we saw the faith of the centurion, that was what was highlighted here, of course. It's the compassion of Jesus in verse 13. He had compassion on her. Now, this is a biblical word that, of course, is used today. So let, let's don't assume what compassion is. Let's, let's define compassion. Well, in the Oxford Dictionary, we read this. Sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others. In the Merriman-Webster Dictionary, sympathetic consciousness of others distressed together with a desire to alleviate. Remember our Indelible Grace concert in November here? Remember that Michael or Matthew Smith, the singer, was a, was a spokesperson for Compassion International. And so you had a table out there in the lobby for Compassion, for, for uh, opportunities to sponsor children in need. And, and Matthew spoke about it. I believe we saw a, a video about Compassion, the work of Compassion International. And here's what they say about themselves. To recognize the sufferings of others and take action to help Compassion embodies a tangible expression of love for those who are suffering. Believe it or not, compassion has even been studied by the U.S. government. The National Institutes of Health and their National Library of Medicine on the National Center for Biotechnology Information, they've got a study an empirical examination of the factor structure of compassion. And if any of you all later want to read 26 pages of data on compassion, well, here, we're going to look at it from the scriptures, but I just want you to get the idea that this world is thinking about compassion. Compassion that's not just sympathy, not just empathy, but compassion, an active component. Not just looking from afar and being sympathetic, not just being empathetic, kind of imagining what it would be like and even maybe coming closer, but all the way to compassion with that active component of of doing something. Some of us were together last year when we studied a book, read through a book, studied, uh, discussed a book called Gentle and Lowly. Gentle and Lowly, focusing on Jesus' own description of himself as someone gentle and lowly in heart, calling people to come to him because that's who he is. And in chapter two, entitled His Heart in Action, the author writes this. What we see Jesus claim with his words in Matthew eleven twenty nine, that is, I am gentle and lowly in heart, we see him prove with his actions time and time again in all four Gospels. What he is, he does. 
He cannot act in any other way. His life proves his heart. This compassion comes in waves over and over again in Christ's ministry, driving him to heal the sick, feed the hungry, teach the crowds, and wipe away the tears of the bereaved, as we'll see today. The Greek word for compassion is the same in all these texts and refers most literally to the bowels or guts of a person. It's an ancient way of referring to what rises up from one's innermost core. This compassion, the author concludes, reflects the deepest heart of Christ. We're going to see that today. So let's open up and explore Luke's narrative account of the raising of the widow's dead son in more detail. Upon closer observation, we'll see that the compassion of Jesus is sovereign, specific, and life-saving. Now, the danger of framing it like sovereign, specific, and life-saving is that the text doesn't actually say, this is the sovereign part, this is the specific part, and this is the life-saving part. No, it's all mixed in together. But I think it's helpful to slow down and see what's going on. Well, here we see in our text a sovereign act of compassion. See, the scriptures declare that God is compassionate. Were you listening to the call to worship? The Lord will have compassion on his servants from Psalm 135. Go sometime to Isaiah 54. Three times there, I will have compassion on you. Who's he talking to? To the rebellious children of Israel. I will have compassion. Well, also in Isaiah and also in the Psalms, you see that God is God. And he reigns and rules. And this God says he is compassionate and he will have compassion. This, this compassion is sovereign. Notice that Jesus doesn't just take the initiative, right? Jesus does everything from beginning to end. He does not act in response to being asked. Right? That's what happened in the, the, the before, the story with the, the centurion. The centurion approaches Jesus, and we saw that exchange where the centurion understood how authority works and says, Jesus, don't even come. I'm not worthy. The Jewish leaders say I'm worthy. I'm not worthy. Just say the word. My servant will be healed. Jesus said, I've never seen faith like that in all of Israel. He responds to that request of the centurion. Here, there's no request. None. I mean, it, it, he knows our, our need before we even speak his name. He acts not because he's asked. He acts because of who he is and what he sees. Notice again, and when the Lord saw her, saw her, he had compassion. Maybe that's the trouble with you and me. We don't see people. When Jesus saw her, he could not but 
given the situation she was in, have compassion. God is compassionate. God is sovereign. God is sovereign in his compassion. Do you believe it? As important as it is to ask God, right? Prayer is asking God. Do you also believe that this God that's being revealed by Jesus Christ can act even without you requesting? Do you, whatever situation you find yourself right now in life, does the thought of God's, do you think about his compassion? And that's an aspect of his rule. Not only of this world out there, but your world. And indeed, it's not this outside world only, it's, it's your world. As we see that Jesus' act of compassion here is not just sovereign, it's not just coming from the, the ruler, it, it's specific. It's a specific act of compassion. Um, it, it's a movement here from the general to the particular. Yes, we read in the Bible that God is compassionate, but here is a demonstration of compassion at a particular time and a particular place. Again, this is the only place that Nain shows up in the scripture. He could have said, and he, what? He went to a certain town, right? He went to a town 25 miles away. He went to a town just south of Nazareth. He went to a town um, uh, on the southern edge of Galilee. He went to Nain. He's headed there. It's a particular zip code. More than a zip code, it's a particular address. The woman. The woman. It's not just a bereaved mother mourning the loss of her son, leading the procession. Well, she's out in front of not the coffin, but the beer, this this um, stretcher-like plank on which the dead body would be carried within a day of the death to the burial outside the city, wrapped in some kind of cloth. She would be in front of it. There's probably some professional mourners out there, some, some flute-type players, kind of literally people you pay to weep, but she's got all the reason to weep not only is she just lost her son, the text says she's a widow, all alone, in a hostile world. You know, yes, she's with that considerable crowd, but soon she's going to be all alone. No husband to care for her, no son to care for her. No wonder we read in Scripture of God having a heart for widows, for orphans, and somebody had referred to her kind of as an orphaned widow. Specific, this woman in this town who's the most vulnerable of all, no social security, she's going to be left all alone. 
So, so let me ask you this. Yeah, yeah we can affirm the, 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 the sovereign compassion of God, but do you know personally the specific compassion of God? The compassion that's, that goes to your email address, to your phone number, to your house address, moving away from the objective reality of God's compassion to the subjective reality, from the theoretical to the experiential. It's one thing to know God is compassionate in whatever you're going through at the moment. A disrupted relationship, a dysfunctional family situation, some kind of loss here or loss there. You know, our confession says, that, or our catechism says that the, the fall of man, into, of man brought the world into an estate of sin and misery. That's where we live now, amongst the sin and misery of life. But yet God's compassion breaks through. Have you experienced it? Do you know it? Not just because you read it, because you're living it. Jesus' act of compassion here is not only sovereign and specific, it's also life-saving. Now that fact, of course, is obvious. But, but more needs to be said. Now, Jesus meets, this joyful crowd is with Jesus and he encounters this mourning crowd coming out of the town and Jesus stops the profession. He, he halts the funeral procession. He, he stands and he touches the beer. Now, that would have made Jesus' ceremonial unclean because there was an innate ritual of how you prepared to touch dead bodies and not only dead bodies, but what dead bodies have touched and also to on the, on the end of that. And Jesus here violates all kinds of ceremonial rules and laws and he touches. He speaks to the mother, don't weep. And that is a terrible thing to say to somebody grieving if you're not gonna immediately do something about the source and the reason for that grief. Because grieving is good and natural and expected with this kind of loss. But Jesus and Jesus alone here can say, do not weep. He touches. Jesus is not gonna be unclean, rather he's cleaning up here in this case one of the effects of the fall. It's life-saving. Now, last week, we saw Jesus stop a deadly disease, right? He was at the point of death. This young man is beyond the point of death. He has died. It's death itself Jesus is dealing with. And it's not so much a resurrection as it is a restoration of life. Because remember, this man who comes back to life is going to die. Jairus' daughter that comes back to life is going to die. Lazarus, who comes back to life, is going to die. We're not talking about the resurrection. 
of a new body, a new life. We're talking a restoration to life. It's life-saving. Now, Jesus is demonstrating authority even over death. And how how does the crowds respond? Now notice, (laughs) there was a great crowd and there was a considerable crowd. And they meet and they come together. And who is at the center of this one crowd? Jesus. He's at the center of this newly formed one crowd. And what do we read? That fear seized them. They glorified God. Here is mingled terror and joy in the presence of the supernatural. If any of us saw this happen before our very eyes today, it would probably be the same reaction that they had then. They were astounded by the supernatural as much as we would be astounded by the supernatural. Fear seized them all, a holy and reverent fear, but also Oh my, what on earth are we now in the presence of? This man has just come from death to life and I'm scared to death. What do they say? This man is a great prophet and that, this man, and that God has visited his people. If you go back to Luke 1 and you see Zechariah's Benedictus, his praise to God in verses 68 and 78, you will see Zechariah saying, God has visited, is visiting his people. We see it happening here in the ministry of Jesus being recognized. And we could talk for a couple of hours over the significance of a, of a great prophet has arisen among us a great prophet, Elijah, Elisha. The promise from Deuteronomy 18 that, that there would be a prophet greater than Moses to come. There's starting to be a recognition, but there's also not only a recognition of something arising up from us, but something about coming down to us from above. Do you believe that the compassion of Jesus is life-saving? Do you believe it's life-changing? We could have ended today with in Christ alone. There's a great line in that hymn, no guilt in life, no fear in death, right? In Christ alone, my hope is found. For those of you that have been brought up or even now may think that God will have compassion on me if I live well and I live right. If I I follow the rules, not only the rules that somebody else has made for me, but the rules that I've made for me, I encourage you to spend time considering the life and ministry of Jesus. He saw her condition. He not only thought 
His, one translation says his heart went out to her, right? It doesn't even say compassion. It says his heart went out. Do you see the heart of Jesus reaching out to you? Maybe you've done a really good job living well and living right and think, why do I need compassion? Sure, I can help other people, but I don't need help. More about that in just a moment. Well, what should our response be to observing and experiencing the sovereign, specific, and life-saving compassion of Jesus? Well, in broad strokes, it'll be similar to the response of the one crowd that is gathered around Jesus, worship and witness. Our response of worship, remember, fear sees them. They glorified God. My friends, Individually and as a church, let's give thanks to God that he doesn't practice random acts of kindness. You see, behind what may seem to us to be somewhat random or by chance is the deliberately planned and for a good purpose act of God. And our response should be of witness. Notice that last verse. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. You see, you, there's no way this kind of act of compassion that went all the way to the raising of the dead can be kept quiet. This report about him spread. You see, my friends, we are to be compassionate because God has been compassionate to us in Jesus. Of course, we love because Christ first loved us. We are compassionate because God has been and continues to be compassionate to us in Jesus Christ. Remember Paul's counsel instruction to the church in Colossae. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He leads with compassion. Some of you right now, if you're like me, may be wondering what on earth is going on in my life? Why is this hard? Why am I experiencing this hard and this difficult trial why is this not going right? Well, have you ever considered that God is using your situation and his ministry to you in order to love and serve others? Paul says it pretty directly in 2 Corinthians 1 that God comforts us so that we can comfort others. You see, one of the ways we experience the compassion of God in Christ is through the compassion we give to others. We make visible, as it were, the invisible compassion of God. And I want us to end by just thinking for a moment as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, uh, the compassion of Jesus Christ on the cross. The late Frederick Buechner born in 1926 and just died last year. He was an author, preacher, theologian. 
He describes what it means to have compassion in this way. He writes, Compassion is sometimes the fatal capacity for feeling what it is like to live inside somebody else's skin. It is the knowledge that there can never really be any peace and joy for me until there is peace and joy finally for you too. Did you hear that? Sometimes the fatal capacity. My friends, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, went to the cross. Jesus has spoken to us through his word and by his spirit that his joy may be in us and that our joy may be full. If you want to see the compassion of God demonstrated more clearly and more significantly than anywhere else, look to the cross of Christ. That's where Jesus did for us, on our behalf, in our place, what we could never do. He was a perfect sacrifice, lived obediently before his father. He also paid the price. He was put to death for the rebellious life that we do live. My friends, the cross of Jesus Christ was not a random act of kindness. It's the only hope we have. Look to Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you that your heart moves toward us before our heart could move toward you. Not only, not only could our heart not move, it was dead. In fact, we were dead in sin and transgressions, but you, through your grace, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace we have been saved through faith. Oh, Father, may the compassion that we see in Jesus enable us to be compassionate to one another and to a lost and dying world that needs Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen. Prepare our hearts by uh, for the taking of the Lord's Supper by